Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Elizabeth Herbst Brady. Elizabeth has had an absolutely legendary career, which we're going to go through and talk about. She's now the VP and head of North American Revenue and Global Client Solutions at the new again, Yahoo. And we were thrilled to work with Ivan and a lot of other folks on your team, Elizabeth, um, to help reintroduce the new Yahoo a couple of weeks ago at Advertising Week at Hudson Yards. And uh, I don't think you know this, but Yahoo is extra special to us, the first company to support Advertising Week when we launched, going all the way back almost 20 years, was Yahoo. So you hold a very Thanks. special place, and I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk to you. Well, me too. I, I weren't, didn't you have a very specific history with Yahoo as well, if I read on your bio properly? I right? do. Weren't I you, did. Didn't you or one of the first like creators of real content? Well, we did a lot. We had, it was a very funny, uh, um, since you asked, the conversation's about you, Elizabeth. Don't try to turn this around. Oh, uh, you know. But um, after the first advertising week, which was September of 04, and it was very modest, we did a, a wonderful opening night at Gracie Mansion, which Mayor Bloomberg hosted for us. Uh, and then we had a, a, a semi-ambitious, but much smaller by comparison, thought leadership program, the whole thing at what was then the Museum of Television and Radio, now the mm -hmm. Pelly Center. So it was a one 200 some odd seat auditorium and another 99 seater. Uh, and that was the whole thing. And I remember afterwards, there was a wonderful guy who's still around, Jerry Sheryshevsky. And Jerry had the uh, interesting title. He was the ambassador plenipotentiary to Madison Avenue for Yahoo. And this was the Terry Semmel, Dan Rosenzweig, yeah. Greg Coleman, Wenda, that whole era of leaders, a very strong era for the company. And um, he asked me, would we consider doing some work sort of on the side, if you will, but not on the side for Yahoo. And, you know, advertising week was very young then when we started in 04, I didn't know that we'd get to do it again in 05. And we used to do some hired gun work. Lance, my longtime business partner, and I, our company, Stillwell. And in effect, we were hired guns for Yahoo for a few years and led a lot of their trade marketing. Um, and then, of course, it became too much. You know, we were working with all of their competitors. It just, you know, something yeah. didn't smell right. And we said, ah, we can't really do this anymore. You know, if you're managing, if you're drinking Coke and Pepsi at the same time, you either have to tell them both or try to be sneaky about it. And we were never the types to try to be sneaky about it. Yeah. So we felt it was important that we remain Switzerland and all we do is advertising week. But there was a period where we did a ton of work for Yahoo, produced a global sales meeting and a couple of times and had a lot of fun with it and, uh, and created a lot of content for the B2B ecosystem, which was, uh, I think we controlled yahoo.advertising.com or something oh, wow. like that back then. So it was a lot of fun. It was a great run. Excellent. Uh, okay. So this is about you. So, oh, okay. Elizabeth, you have such an interesting background and have worked at some of the most iconic companies that our industry has ever produced. But I want to go all the way back to your education and take us back to the uh, wonderful city of Boston. Uh, and uh, you were a major in psychology at Harvard. And I would love to juxtapose your career as one of the most dynamic players on the sales side. Um, 
and how that academic background of psychology has helped you? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I am going to imagine my answer is going to surprise you a little bit because what you probably don't realize is while I did go to that illustrious university in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Harvard, um, the experience for me was actually really, really difficult and set the foundation for what I think ultimately gave me an incredibly successful career, but probably not in the ways you have thought. So certainly always interested in psychology, what makes people work. I think that connectivity is easy to see. But what my Harvard experience taught me more than anything was you really have to be connected with yourself and understand like why you're doing something and what you're trying to get out of it. Because I had spent my entire childhood thinking I need to get into Harvard and I had done everything I could to get into Harvard. But what do you think the question is that I didn't answer? Why? Exactly. And if you, again, you think about all the history around media and marketing and advertising, like the why is incredibly important. And so I learned really, really early on that I better figure out the why and kind of the corollary to that is, and I, and I think this goes for, you know, many people in the industry, particularly if you have high expectations for yourself, there's sort of this sense of fear around making mistakes, right? You want to show up, you want to be competent, you want to demonstrate all that you know and all that you can do. If you have a client, right, you want them to feel comfortable and confident that the solutions that you're offering them are going to work for them. Um, and, and error seems something that you would never want. But the truth is, we all do ultimately make mistakes. Like it, it's, it's unavoidable in life. And the most important thing is to own your mistakes and then learn from your mistakes. And so I know you asked me what I learned about it from psychology about and how that translated into my career in sales and honestly in marketing and media in general, because I also spent a fair amount of time on the agency side. Um, I would say it's really that, that you really have to try to answer the why. And then in terms of your own interaction and how you work with folks and try to deliver solutions, you know, be accountable, and then try to move forward when there are issues. And then certainly within that, um, you know, over time, I think you build up a foundation of trust and, and, and competence. It's, it's not the answer I expected, but it's a great answer um, and, an on, and an honest answer. So you then start this incredible run working initially in sort of the account services area and working for CBS Network Sales and Tribune and Fox. And I guess you had a couple runs at Fox. Um, what do you remember from those days, Elizabeth? The, the, the media world in the late 80s when you started was so different. Um, yeah. You know, I think that was still pretty much the era. I have very vivid memories, which when I share with my kids, they look at me like, um, you know, we're watching Jurassic Park. And I tell them I used to have a little black and white 13 inch television and you had channels two, four, five, seven, nine, 11, 13, and the fuzzy UHF channel. And that, <laughs> and that was it. Yep. When you started working, it wasn't too far removed from that. 
Nope. I think 1988 was when the Cable Fable was put out by David Poltrack at CBS, right? And it was a super station that was TBS and w, probably WGN. Those were the yeah, two. Yeah, out of Chicago. Right? Yeah, that was it. Exactly. CNN, maybe. I'm maybe getting the date wrong. Um, so look, I actually think ironically, um, in spite of sort of my experience of how I got into the working world, I happened on the perfect Venn diagram of overlap of finding something I loved and then bringing some experience of competency, and I'll get to that in a minute, and then just working hard and having a great opportunity of both human connectivity and delivering solutions for clients. So when I joined CBS, I got to work in the primetime network area. Um, and one of my very first responsibilities was to make sure that clients understood the changes with regard to their programming slate. That was like a big deal way back when, right? And as somebody who had read the TV guide cover to cover from the time I could read, I knew that schedule like the back of my hand. So I walked in the door and I had this inherent understanding of what the schedule was and honestly, a deep passion and connectivity to the product. I love television. I love the programming. And um, I could speak intelligently, articulately, and enthusiastically about the slate, both what it had been and what it would be. Um, and that was, it was really, really exciting to be on the inside of the business of this product that touched consumers of which I was prime consumer. Um, and I think that that was really a transformative thing where I was like, oh, I get to work in this thing that I actually personally care about so much. Um, so, that, I mean, that's really, I, re I remember, you know, the, we think about things like the up, up fronts where you had the transaction of millions and millions and millions of dollars, um, you know, like literally on the back of a napkin at some points in time. Um, once I was a planner, I was actually doing the plans that had to marry up to the number that was on the back of the napkin. Uh, and it was just, I, at that point, I think I got to experience what was great about the excitement and the evolution of the business. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was, I had a front tour or, you know, a, a front hand look at what was going to be kind of the explosion of marketing, media, and technology. I just happened into it. Um, I would love to say it was because I'm brilliant, but I, I was lucky and I've never looked back. Listen, it's being never a, being in the right place at the right, right? time is, uh, there's a lot of value in right place, right time. Yeah. So, but clearly you were good at what you did because, you know, give or take five years into your career, you become a VP of sales at Fox Inc. Yep. And 20th Century Fox, that, that was a, it's still a big operation. It was a very big operation them and very influential. And you rose up quickly. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? Were you just good at what you did? That's the easy answer. Did you have great mentors? Um, right place, right time? Because you were a very fast riser, much yeah. way above average. Oh, well, um, I think all of the above. So first, um, you know, I, Think I had a very strong work ethic, as I previously mentioned. Like I love the industry, so everything I read and did, and you know, almost everybody I knew and spoke with were some part of it. So I was drinking from the fire hose regularly. Um, I was deeply committed to servicing my clients 
and was able to develop that sort of reputation. I had the very good fortune of having some wonderful mentors. Um, a woman who's still in the business, her name is Linda Renee. I'm sure you know her. She was one of my first bosses at CBS. Um, not only taught me how to calculate the CPM, but as she likes to say, uh, helped me understand what to see the forest through the trees, like understand how to make good decisions, you know, maybe not just short-term decisions. Um, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Sessa, who in that job uh, that I ultimately became a VP, he hired me into to go to Chicago and open that office. Um, some people might have said, oh, she's too young. She hasn't done it before. But he, you know, interviewed me and said, you know, I'm going to take a chance on her. Um, and um, I think, you know, also just the fact that, um, again, I got to be a part of an industry that was exploding. So if you were willing to jump in and roll your sleeves up, um, you could probably experience the opportunity. So I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And going back, uh, that work ethic, that's come up a few times. Did you work as a teenager? I think you and I are about the same age. Yeah. And one of the things that I attribute whatever modest degree of success I've had, I still in my mind attribute to all those jobs I did in my teen years. I was telling my daughter last night about, and I've tortured my kids with all these stories, of course, many times, but evidently I had left a job out. One of the, one of the jobs I did was I worked at American Kennels, which was a pet store on West 8th Street. And I was about 15 and my job literally was to clean the cages in a pet store. And I loved the job. I was probably making minimum wage, whatever that was at the time, five, six, $7 an hour, whatever it was, may have been less but I loved it. And I look back on that period fondly. And I think it gave me a foundation and an understanding of how to deal with people, how to deal with difficult bosses um, or the opposite, how to learn to be, it's one thing to have great mentors, but you have to learn how to be mentored um, and right. how to receive good advice. Did you work as a kid? I, I, I did. Um, I, everything from lawn chores, you know, under the age of 12 to the Winston's Bakery, which was right at State Street and Division Street. Um, I was the lifeguard. I babysat from as early at his age as somebody would consider me worthy of taking care of their child. So it was probably right. like 13 or 14. Um, and all through college, I worked. I, not really internships. I just had, you know, basic service jobs. Yeah. Uh, and certainly that contributed. I would say an eco contributor would be the model that my parents had. Um, my father, you know, was a cancer surgeon and worked, you know, six to seven days a week for as long as I can remember. Um, when he began his, he, he, his last job was, he was the um, head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. And when he took that job on, he was the youngest chief in the country. And when he left it, he was the oldest. So I think it was like 35, 36 years. Mm. And my mom um, taught mathematics um, for 45 years. And, you know, she worked almost full time, um, had two children and had absolutely no help, which by the way, is not a model I would support and recommend to anybody, including myself. Uh, but 
I, you know, every single day I saw my parents working incredibly hard at everything they did. Um, and also, you know, doing their best to support my brother and I. So I think well, that yeah. probably equally contributed in all honesty. Great. And yeah, it has to leave an impression. And isn't there also something, I'm such a big fan of Chicago and the Midwest in general, but Chicago in particular. And I find there's something where several generations removed from, you know, Ellis Island, you and I, but I find there's a real work ethic uh, that comes out of Chicago and there's a, a, a grounding to people that are from that particular city. It just seems to breed great people and people who like to work hard the old fashioned way. Yeah, I mean, I think urban centers in general, to your point, tend to be um, beacons for immigrants. And I think immigrants have, have a long and storied and wonderful history of um, driving productivity. Um, but certainly Chicago is no exception to that. Yeah, great city. I was just there for a wedding. I, I remind, every time I go there, I'm reminded how much I love it. Um, so then you have an eight-year run at Universal Television, a little bit different. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that. That was a long and very successful run, and you rise from SVP to EVP. Yeah, no, that was actually, it was another, trans, I would say, truly transformative moment in my career. So I went there to work for a gentleman who, his name was Greg Mydell. Again, you talk about why you do well. This is somebody I'd worked for him at Fox. He went over to run everything at Universal. It was actually MCA when he went over to the work there. He gave me... I had a sales job. Again, probably most of my peers were much younger than I was, but he had seen what I was able to do at Fox and he gave me the chance. Um, and then on the cusp of the evolution of the television business, enter Barry Diller, who bought some of the television assets and started to combine them with various digital assets, things like Ticketmaster, HSN, Expedia, um, And so in my role, I was one level beneath Barry Diller. So my boss reported to Barry Diller and I got to see firsthand what I would say is the most transformative management and, and kind of forward thinking leadership that I had experienced to date. So, you know, he was so clear about what the goals were. He was so clear, you know, what businesses were there to earn money, what, how he was thinking about new businesses, what was innovation versus what was just overall productivity. Um, you definitely wanted to succeed. So it's certainly not a uh, touchy-feely environment, but it was absolutely crystal clear about what the objectives were, feedback uh, Luke was really clear and it was, and he had his finger on the pulse of the future in a way that was incredibly impressive. So, so. we're going to talk about your agency uh, gigs as well, but right around that time, I guess, just before you started um, an MCA, great legacy company from uh, the great Lou Wasserman, of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, Yahoo was born Yep. Right around that time, a little before, I guess you were still at Fox. I, as I recall, somewhere around 1994 when Jerry Yang and David Philo created yep. Yahoo. Um, as you're digging in and rising up at Universal Television, the internet and digital is starting yep. to evolve. Yep. Very different from when you began, you know, give or take 10 years earlier at CBS. 
Talk about your remembrances of the early days and what did folks who were in, let's call it established media, think of these rising players, some of which are still around, uh, many of which are gone. Right. I would actually say, and I'm so glad you brought it up because I think, um, you know, you talked about, I started at CBS, right? And cable wasn't really around. Right. And, um, you know, you, I, I call them like the deniers of the future, right? And they just want to hold on. And you saw that kind of tide rise and then fall. And then eventually people had to concede, oh, by the way, the future is coming. I remember very much at that time with the exception, that's why I'm carving out Barry Diller, because at a time when a traditional media company would never even thought to consider anything around the internet, he bought City Search, right? He transitioned Ticketmaster from a telephone order business to an online business in 18 months. Think about that. Um, but I will say much of the traditional media and certainly television ecosystem looked at the internet as this thing over here this thing that had nothing to do with them. And you could see the walls not just be even need to be put up, they were there. Um, they were there within content companies, even if there was some nascent digital part of the business, uh, maybe um, a show had a website or something, those, those areas never even spoke to each other. The same silos developed at the agencies and candidly, they developed at the clients too. And that is why some of the newer companies, you know, called the DTCs like an Uber has had an easier time transitioning to the newer world because they don't have these legacy silos around thinking about the consumer, right? They just think about the consumer holistically. So it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting to like reflect on it. You got me thinking about that early tenure when we did a lot of work for and with Yahoo. And I remember when they hired Lloyd Braun, who was a big shot at ABC and Gail Berman, who was a big shot at, I think it was, was it Fox? Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess in some ways, you know, it was all around creating content at an earlier version if you will, of Yahoo, and it was not very successful, but they might've just been ahead of their time in some ways. You know, when you look now with the benefit of hindsight and you look at the, you know, so much of the conversation around streaming and in a sense, they just weren't, the technology wasn't really ready for what they were trying to create right. in a lot of ways. And television was really the only place then when you could create television. Right. Well, the customer, yeah, the customer, the consumer connectivity wasn't, and the, the ability for discovery. I mean, I don't even think you really had search at that point, did you? So yeah. the discoverability was very different. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it's very interesting. You can have the right idea at the wrong time. You can have the right idea with the wrong execution. You can have the wrong idea with really good execution that then lulls you into a sense of like, that's a good idea. And I think, you know, where the winners and the losers ultimately get separated is those that can parse those pieces well, right? They can understand, oh, maybe I just need your pivot on how I executed that, not that it was the wrong idea. Right, and so much of it still uh, brings us back to you, comes down to the people. Yes, you absolutely, know. absolutely. Uh, so we then make a, a little transition and you enter and get to go back to your hometown to run one of the legendary groups and be their client leader for the group over at Starcom. Yeah, that was, uh, again, another incredibly pivotal experience. Uh, John Musinski gave me the great opportunity to go run the broadcast investment group and be one of the client leads. Um, 
I will uh, maybe embarrassingly admit that that was one of the first times that it ever occurred to me that clients were spending money to uh, accomplish goals and that it wasn't just about the you know, negotiation of a, CBM, a CPM based off a of constrained supply, which had been the ecosystem that I lived inside of. Uh, learned all about um, you know, the respondent level data in, in Nielsen, some of the frailties associated with that, some of the challenges associated with planning and just started to dip my, chew, my toe into understanding um, all the various methods for validating and verifying the success of campaigns beyond um, achieve, achieving a certain number of GRPs, right? Um, it was fascinating and fun. Um, and what took me back to New York was really, my husband and I really missed New York. So I, had, I was very fortunate that my old boss at Fox said, come on back. And very fortunate that um, John was so supportive. Great. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you were doing there uh, at that time at Starcom. And you talk about managing all the broadcast investment. The toolkit that you have now, I think uh, when I had a chance to catch up with Ivan at Advertising Week a few weeks ago, I think it was something like 900 million or so are on the Yahoo platform on a daily basis. Yep. Does that sound right? Yep. yep. Um, and the toolkit that you have available to you uh, to be able to show brand partners what's happening is vast. Back oh. then, the toolkit that you had was less vast. Talk about that evolution, because you've seen it all well, uh, over time. And, and what you have at your fingertips now, a little bit different from what it was then. Well, absolutely. And so that was a little bit. So what, what I started to understand when I went to Starcom was the various methods that clients employed to um, validate their goals, right? Whether it was the initial, you know, thinking around things like MTA or market mix modeling or what, what, whatever it was that they would use as benchmarks to then try to correlate what they were doing from a marketing perspective with their actual financial performance, right? And, and again, it was different based on the category and the level of data and sophistication of the marketer, but it was really just starting out, right? Um, you know, this notion of same store sales for retailers, right? That was one of the things that Best Buy was really Now, when you look at what we have at Yahoo, um, you know, we can offer real-time feedback around actual performance of sales. You know, that's an in, in, in completely different uh, type of framework. Um, you know, we have um, in-flight sales analysis that we can do that can show, again, real-time sales lifts for, C for CPG clients. Right. Um, you know, everything that goes on in, in the app ecosystem um, I mean, candidly, the first time I even saw it was when I got to work at Snapchat, right? And start to understand like the power of that one-to-one -one relationship. So it's been really exciting. I think the other thing that's going on now that is kind of the promise of what marketers have always wanted is this idea of omni-channel planning and buying. So, you know, the and you remember Rashad Tabakwala? Of course. Right? How could you so Rashad had this wonderful way of talking about 
um, kind of marketing and media jobs versus a consumer. And I'm going to bungle it a bit, but it, it, net net, he would say, you know, we go to work every day and we do our jobs and there's definitions of the box of how you're supposed to do it and how you have to un understand it. And then we go home and we're a consumer and everything we do as a consumer belies those boxes. And what he was giving an example of is you're a radio buyer, you're a TV buyer, you're a out of home buyer, but then you're a person and you walk down the street and you see an ad and you're listening to something on the radio and you watch something on television, you're the same person. And, and none of those touch points is, are connected at all. And you're not, right? And, and, and the marketers, it's very hard to, at that point in time, to consider that and understand that. Now we're building out omni-channel planning and buying tools. Like it's amazing. And uh, I think ultimately bears weight because it's in fact a better consumer experience, isn't it? If as a consumer, you, the, the, the brands that you're trying to connect with understand you more holistically. Yeah, no, it's an amazing evolution. So you touched on it already uh, and what Starcom gave you in terms of those insights along the, the very area we're discussing now. Uh, I would think that only grew further with your really successful tenure as president at Magna. Yeah, Magna was incredible. Um, I think I would be remiss, though, if I didn't share one of the things that Starcom taught me. So there is the technical pieces but I would say equally, if not more important, the human pieces, because that was one of the first times I had a very large team. And it was one of the first points as a manager that I started to see and understand, um, you know, your job as a manager is to review and correct. Your job is, as a manager is to enable, support, inspire, and um, clear the path. And that's, that's a really important pivot. Um, and I think one that frequently can be a challenge for folks, particularly for sellers off the backs of being successful individual contributors and then having to pivot over. So um, I would feel bad if I didn't mention that because that's also been a very important theme to me in terms of how I've thought of certainly the last 15 years of my career. Yeah, and you mentioned um, John, but some other great, great leaders at Starcom. Absolutely. Kathy Ring, Chris Booth. Yeah. Wonderful people, wonderful. Um, uh, who, oh my goodness, I'm gonna forget her name now. Oh, Kate Sirkin, she's yeah. still there. Right. right, incredible. Great, great folks. Uh, um, Renetta McCann, who I think now is over at Leah Burnett. Yeah, no, still around, still, she's still going strong. Her real, real Jack force, clues. I mean, force of nature. Love Jack, Lo absolutely yeah. love Jack. Uh, so we then go to Viacom. Yeah. And have a great run there. And that was a little sexier, at least outwardly, working in the music and entertainment space. It was fun. I would say you had asked about Magna, off the backs of Magna. I would say what was the most important piece there was an understanding of a global economy. Because in my role of both, we launched um, the Magna model, which was about understanding media spend at a macro level. And then also the opportunity to work on global clients. Um, I would say I was somebody who always appreciated cultural differences, but working within them and having the opportunity to really understand the pieces as they come together. Uh, that was truly, truly transformational. So, so let's you hit on something there. And let's before we keep going down our path, yeah. um, you also are raising a family at that time. I was. Uh, 
the world was a little bit different, much less sensitive, I think, even 10 or 15 years ago than it is now. You didn't hear people talk about work-life balance then. You didn't hear any conversation at all about mental health. That's relatively recent. Talk about that part of the struggle and how you managed it all because you were rising up the ladder, big, big jobs, family. How much of a struggle was that for you? Um, you know, I would say, uh, life is hard. <laughs> I yeah. don't think it ever isn't. Um, I think I was very fortunate, uh, from the perspective that, um, I earned an income at a level that I could afford, uh, help. Yep. Right. So I, um, I was fortunate that, um, my husband is an equal partner to me on these things, um, which was, um, you know, not new, but newer at that point in time. Um, I think I was also lucky that for the most part, the work I was doing um, fueled me because I liked it, you know, if not every moment, but holistically, it's very hard to motivate yourself to do something you don't like, right? but I did like it. And um, I think what is better about today than was when, what is, when I was doing it is there is the opportunity to freely discuss that which might be hard. So that was not so fun. I, I did very much feel when my children were young that I, I should not talk about them and I should not ever suggest that there would be a moment that I might not be working. Um, I don't think that that was healthy or good. Um, I think they seem to have survived fine, but I probably missed, uh, I know it was probably, I feel that I missed some things that I wish I hadn't. Um, and I, I think I, what I'm most grateful for is I can give back to kind of the next generation of leaders and certainly my team both the transparency that it's okay to talk about some of these things and the support for when they need to make those decisions to make those decisions, um, as opposed to feeling like you had to make them in secret. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about Magna giving you the benefit of that global perspective. One of the things that I've learned just by us having advertising weeks all around the world and having employees in turn all around yeah. the world, you know, the way that we treat for example, when someone has a baby in America relative to how they do it in Europe, a little bit different. Yeah. You know, we've been very blessed. Many people on our team, uh, women have had babies in the last several years and um, our global head of sales, Sophie uh, Ram, now Sophie Mackey had a baby, a little Jack Mackey recently. And I think it's like six months or so. And in yeah. America, you know, the expectation is, you, uh, you're in the hospital Friday, you're coming back to work Monday. I mean, not that quick, but pretty close. And I think, you know, the way some of this stuff is handled in other places is a whole lot more human. I actually feel one of, look, technology has done lots of things for the world. Um, most of them very good, some of them not as good, but one of the really positive influences of, I think, the tech companies on certainly the marketing media ecosystem is a more holistic view of um, what's the right support for employees 
things like maternity and all that. Um, the traditional media companies were not good about that. Right. So uh, I think about, you know, when I was at Snap, uh, they were in the process. I mean, it was young, but, you know, they have a very good uh, maternity leave policy. I think ours at um, Yahoo, I stand behind. It's a very good one. And, you know, all the other ones, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters. I think there is this sense of, you know, you need to do the right thing. Um, there, these things are never perfect, but I, I, there's at least the attempt to address it. So I think yeah. that that's been a really positive impact. Yeah, I agree with you. I think in the state, Silicon Valley has not gotten credit for that, but I think they have led uh, a lot of humanity uh, there in a very positive way. So you mentioned it a couple of times, but let's talk about your tenure at Snap, which is uh, uh, another great partner of ours. Uh, we love uh, Betsy Lack and her team there. Betsy's um, wonderful. She is a unique individual. Uh, yes. And uh, you were there at an interesting time. Yeah, look, I, so when I went to Snapchat, my kids were teenagers and I knew about Snapchat because that's how I talked to them. You know, they had these, these phones in their hands all the time. And if I called them, they didn't necessarily call me back. If I emailed them, they certainly didn't ever email me back. If I snapped them, they snapped me back. Uh, and so literally just as a parent looking for connectivity to my teenage children, it was this amazing thing. I also will say, um, you know, Evan for me was really prescient. This idea that he, you know, created an application based off of the right to be forgotten. Like, think about that so far ahead of his time. And in fact, so incredibly important. Um, I was so proud to work on the product. I thought it was fun. I thought it was exciting, but talk about, um, a having to really adjust to a different way of working. Um, you know, it was young, millennial, dynamic. Um, and I had to adjust my management style. I had to adjust my communication style. Uh, I had to adjust how I thought about the time you had to make decisions even because things move so quickly. Uh, you just had to get a little bit more comfortable with, I've got this amount of information. I got to make a decision. I wish I had all that information, but I don't I need to move forward. Those things are moving so quickly. Um, it was certainly hard, but one of the best and highest learning situations that I've ever been in. And I, I will be forever grateful for my time at Snapchat. So I'm very cognizant uh, that I've reached a point in life where most of the time I'm the oldest one in the room by a yeah. pretty healthy margin. Yeah. Snap is a very young company. Talk about that. And was it hard for you? Easy for you? Um, cause I'm going to guess similarly, again, we're around the same age that you were probably the oldest one in the room more probably. often than not. Um, Look, it was it was definitely different, right? Um, I will say it was an adjustment. It was absolutely adjustment. I think the gift it gave me is learning is really, again, it kind of cemented this notion of managers are not about instructing, right? Managers are about enabling, supporting, and inspiring. There were certainly skills that I had 
and uh, a vantage point that I have that was very benefit for the very beneficial for the organization. Like I understood how business got done. I understood the marketing media landscape, so I could connect the dots for them. I knew people, so if they needed to go in to see things, but I'm not an engineer, right? So there were things that I really didn't know about that I had to be vulnerable to say, I don't know this. Can you help me understand that? And that person who was probably helping me understand that was likely the age of my child. And that was okay. Like learning that was incredibly interesting. And again, the gift of the two-way learning process, I think is what makes not just organizations stronger, but certainly people. So um, yes, hard. I will never say it was easy. It was really, really hard, but it opened up the world in a way that I don't think I would have seen if I hadn't done it. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. I think I learn as much from our young people as uh, they do from me. Yeah. Um, so then we end up our windy road to the present day and to Yahoo initially at the now old parent company, Verizon. What brought you to Verizon? So a couple of things. So you talked about important like mentors and, and supporters. Um, you know, Jeff Lucas, I, he called on me in two different roles and I worked for him in three different roles. Right. He was, a, he, had a great, he had a great run at Viacom, so, didn't he? Right. Viacom, I worked with him at Snap and I also worked with him at, um, it became Verizon Media literally the day I joined. It was Oath the, the quarter before. And he had this role, it was leading the field sales team, which is like the top 250 accounts. And, um, I just thought, you know, this could be really fun. I was really interested to understand how Verizon would come together with these media assets. Um, and I thought it'd be fun. I thought it'd be fun. So I joined and it did not disappoint. It did not disappoint. Uh, and then I was, you know, it was bittersweet for me when he left because he's not just an amazing boss, but he's my good friend. Um, but, you know, then I had to grow up and stand on my own again. So <laughs> okay, that was 18 so I, months ago. Oh my God, time does fly. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, the present and the future, but as an outsider looking in, when you look at Verizon and AT&T, it seems like they ran full on into the content business, made huge investment, colossally large acquisitions and almost as fast as they ran into it, they ran away from it. Is that an accurate take from me, a layman looking from the outside, looking yeah. in? Look, I, I would not pretend to have any inside or even, you know, educated view of what people were thinking about when they made the acquisitions that they made. Um, I do think it is easy to understand why as, you know, um, wireless companies, you'd be interested in content, right? Particularly when people are consuming so much content in all these various areas. So I, and I think what you'll see over time is neither of these companies are abdicating connectivity with content companies, it's just how close do they want to be with us? So even in the situation with, with Yahoo and Verizon, Verizon's still an investor in us, right? They're still one of our most important partners. The question is, how do you want to spend your operating time 
versus your strategic connectivity time. So I, I, again, I wouldn't I get, begin to even surmise what was going on with AT&T, I would have, but I, I think that's really what you're seeing. People are deciding how deeply can they be in a business versus where is it better to be a partner in the business? No, that's um, a great answer. And, and so that's, that's how, I was at, how I would explain the sort of pivots. Yeah, no, AJ, I think, you know, I, I always think more of AT&T, you know, with the time all that they fought to make that time Warner acquisition uh, right. and it, going through antitrust and all, and then very relatively quickly ran the other way. So very, I guess history will um, yeah. have an interesting but, view on all that. But even within that, like, they went the other way, but not. I mean, it's not as though they'll have nothing to do with that organization, as I understand the structure of what they don't have yeah. done, right? Yeah, so. yeah, no, very, uh, very interesting, uh, rich topic area. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the new Yahoo. Let's talk yeah. about uh, the the mandate that you have. It seems like Apollo is really committed to investing in the business, is excited yeah. about the business. I think Yahoo, in my mind, is one of very few brands that have a halo. People like Yahoo, and that's not they something do. that you can acquire. You know, no one likes Con Edison. You know, no matter what <laughs> Con Edison does, no right? one likes them. Um, and there are very few brands that you can point to. You could argue that Apple has a halo. You could argue that Nike has a halo. But the number of brands that have a halo with the heft and throw weight of Yahoo, you can count on fingers on one hand, I think, maybe less. Yeah. Must be a very exciting time to be at Yahoo. I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a master brand and a constellation of assets. Um, we play in content and we have outstanding ad tech. Um, and, you know, you talked about this earlier, we have a huge consumer footprint. And I think the thing that is super exciting at this point is the opportunity to move a little bit more quickly. Uh, than perhaps we were able to as a part of such a large organization. I, we got great stability from Verizon, and, and I think um, the time under Verizon put us in a good position. But now I'm excited to see have us be able to fly a little bit faster and um, you know make make a few bets. We have Jim Lanzone who just joined. Um, he's in his first 100 days and uh, be very, very excited to have him leaving, leading the company. Yeah, we know and love Jim. He had, he had a great run at CBSI and yes, was on stage with us many times. Uh, and yep. he's a, a terrific dynamic guy. And he was just at Tinder, which is one of those Barry Diller companies. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a terrific guy. So talk about what makes you different. Um, <laughs> got a huge audience. But it's oh, a very Yahoo. competitive. I, okay. No, well, let's yeah. stick with the company for now. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about uh, your sort of, you know, I don't want to use trite words or expressions, uh, but, you know, you've got some stuff that's unique to you. Um, you've got a big audience, but there are other places where folks, brands can go if they want to connect with a large number of people. Talk about what you've engineered there because your tech stack and what is underneath the engine is really strong. I think a lot of the stuff that was built that you are now benefiting by, um, you've got a, a big, big horsepower engine on, under there. Talk about what makes Yahoo, okay. Yahoo today. 
first, as always, I think it really starts with the consumer, our brands, Yahoo Finance, Sports, and Mail. They give us a direct connectivity to the consumer, and that allows us to build our identity graph. And for advertising partners, we use that to provide the technology and the platforms to meet their goals. We can build awareness and then take them all the way through the funnel to performance. And we can also enhance their experiences with creative support in custom content creation with Riot and unique ad formats with ACT. For publishers, we can also bring first and third party demand. And ultimately it's an end to send solution for advertisers and publishers, which creates a more efficient marketplace that benefits everybody. And to your credit, you've stayed out of the press on some of the most challenging issues uh, that the industry is dealing with around data and privacy. You don't read about that. You don't hear about it with Yahoo. You guys seem to have, you know, really paid attention to what you're doing there and uh, keeping the lid on where it should be kept on. Look, I, I think we're committed to doing the right thing. So, um, and I, I think Yahoo has stood for that. Um, you know, uh, I know our general counsel takes that very seriously and, you know, we're, we're, we're in it for the long term to do the right thing by the consumer. And then by extension, that's by our advertisers. Yeah. Well, listen, it's going to be very exciting to watch uh, this new version of Yahoo come back. I love that you're bringing back the irreverence and all the things that uh, make Yahoo special. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed the chance to talk to you, Elizabeth. This has been terrific. It's lovely to talk to you as well. 